Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. What's up, guys? Good morning. Happy fall. What a beautiful... I woke up this morning. The coffee had pre-made. You could smell the coffee running through the house. It was like 55 degrees. It's like, this is unbelievable. feels like football games should be on, more so than heading to the beach or heading to the lake this weekend. Uh, I want to point out, too, before we start, that today's a really cool day. Today, for those of you that don't know, it's Pentecost Sunday. And so even as Lisa sang the song, King of Kings, and talking about how the Church of Christ was born, today is that uh, anniversary, if you will, of celebrating the Holy Spirit falling on Pentecost, coming on the believers, and thousands coming to know uh, Christ that day. Uh, And so the church then has spread, as Jesus said, across the world, and so we celebrate that day today. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to jump in this morning. And we're going to talk about some, some things this morning. We're going to read this passage. But guys, far more important than anything that I'm going to say up here this morning is what God may be wanting to say to you and teach you and speak to you in your own time with him in the word. And my hope and my prayer is that you don't just show up on a Sunday for 40 minutes or so and this is the only time that you open up the word and the only time that you get a teaching but that you take this book, and if you don't have one, then, then, then let the church give you one or go buy one. But, but what you need to be doing each day is, guys, we got to open this thing up because this is where we, we hear the words of Jesus. And this is where the Lord uh, will speak through us or speak to us through the Holy Spirit. And so spend time as you guys are going through Luke. Don't just spend the 35 or 40 minutes or so hearing it once. But gosh, man, like what, what would the Holy Spirit do and how can he sharpen your life and what may he do uh, in and through you by reading this on your own? And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 is where we'll start this morning. It says that now it happened uh, that he was praying, that was Jesus, Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him. And Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, uh, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, well, you're the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." A.W. Tozer has a famous quote, and he says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says what, what comes into our mind when we ask ourselves the question that Jesus poses here, who do you say that I am? And when we reflect on that for a moment, we say, God, who who do I view you as? A.W. Tozer will say, what comes to mind and the answer that stirs up within you that you give to that question is the fundamentally most important thing about who you are. He'll go on in that quote to say, not only is it fundamentally important for us as the believer to answer that question, but collectively as the body of believers and as the church, we must be honest with the question of, who do you say that I am? 
he'll write and say that, that it's, it's not just what a man may say or the words that he utters that either brings him up to the mountaintops or can cause destruction in his life, but rather it's the subtle thoughts and it's the belief internally of when we ask, who is God to us? And there was a, there's a story of this youth pastor who was at a church camp and he'd taken about 10 of his student guys, his younger guys with him. And they'd gone to this week-long uh, youth, retreat, uh, youth retreat and camp and they'd gone through these sessions and studies and the speaker had been bringing a great word and they had gone back one evening about three or four days in into their little cabin. And the, the leader of, of the, the boys group is sitting there kind of giving their, their cabin talk time. And after they get done, he looks at his guys and he says, I'm going to describe, I'm going to describe something to you. And after I get done describing it, I want you to tell me what it is that I'm describing. So the kids are like, all right, cool. So the youth pastor says, well, I'm describing, it's an animal. Uh, this animal lives in the woods. Uh, it, it loves to climb up and down trees. It's got a squeaky kind of sound it makes. It's brown in color. It's got a fluffy, poofy tail. And you can often find it on your bird feeder. What am I describing? And the little boys, they, they sat there in silence for a moment. And one finally raised his hand. He says, man, it sounds like you're, you're describing a squirrel, but I'm going to say it's Jesus. And I give that analogy because I think when we step in to church, when we've grown up in Sunday school and the culture of the Christianity that we've grown up into, when we're posed with a question like, who do you say that I am? Who do we believe God to be for me in my life? Often we can give the Jesus answer. We can say, man, this is what I heard in Sunday school. Right? This is just what I've been taught. This is what society has said. We give the Jesus answer. What I want to do this morning is we're going to take a couple minutes. We're going to sit. We're going to play some house music. And I want us to get something to write down. Get your phone out. But we're going to sit for a moment. We're going to ask the question, who do we say Jesus is? Give the squirrel answer. If it sounds like something it should be, if what comes to mind sounds like, I mean, this is really who I believe Jesus to be, there's no wrong answer to this. Right? Like your belief and what you've been grown up or, or groomed into believing God to be, like you're not necessarily wrong for that because that's what you believe. <laughs> now, the view might not be correct, but we're going to spend some time getting into that in a little while. But I want you to give the squirrel answer for a moment as I pray. And then we're going to write down, Holy Spirit, in this moment, will you bring to mind in all of us the belief, the thoughts, the feelings, the perceptions, whatever, that stir in us and come to mind when we ask the question to ourselves, who do I say you are? So I pray over these people right now that you will give them clarity of thought to write down clearly their belief and the view that they have of you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take two minutes. I want you guys to grab something to write with. Ask the question, who do I really believe Jesus to be? I want you to write those things down. I want you to sit in it for a minute and ponder it before we go any further.
And just begin to list those things out. Maybe it's one thing. Maybe there's a view of who you see God. Maybe, maybe there's a feeling of the way that you believe God sees you. But just ask that question. So Jesus sat right in front of you. Even close your eyes and imagine that you're sitting in front of him to say, who do you say that I am? What would you tell him? What would you tell him? You know, one of my favorite words as of recent is the word confession. And the word confession in its simplest form just means to tell God the truth. I think confession can get this idea of like, well, confession is an apology or confession is admitting I was wrong. But confession at its base level is just truth telling. And we know through scripture that God loves when we tell him the truth. That is even as, as we'll read in the Gospels, like there's things that it says the disciples or the Pharisees, they would be thinking in their minds and all of a sudden Jesus starts answering them. Like imagine having a subtle thought about something and then Jesus starts speaking to it. And you're like, I was just a thought in my mind, but God knows the truth of our innermost being. And so we're going to take what we just wrote, what we just ponder. We're going to move into a time of prayer before, because before we can go any further in this passage, we need to be honest and bring before God the belief of who we believe that he really is. And in bringing these things to, to God and in truth-telling our perceptions and our beliefs of him, we are going to ask him then in the remaining time to then speak through his spirit who he truly is. Who does he really want us to know that he is? And what does it look like then to follow that Jesus? And so I'd invite you guys to join me on my knees because we're going to put our body in this posture of surrender. We're going to put our body in this posture of sacrifice. And we're just going to bring these things to the Lord as we enter into prayer. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that uh, you love when we're just honest with you, that there's nothing we have to hide. God, and I, I pray that you will uh, just rid our belief that when we come into church, we've got to put on a front and act a certain way and sound a certain way to look the right way. And I just rebuke that belief in the name of Jesus, that church would be a place that we can step in uh, fully who we are, and so, Lord, I just I bring before you the beliefs of people. And as you kneel, I would even just say, Jesus, here's who I believe that you are. And whatever came to mind, just confess that to Jesus in your own words. Jesus, I believe you to be blank. And with this confession, we lay it at your feet, Jesus, and we ask now in this remaining time, through your spirit, will you speak to us who you truly are? God, will we be able to lay aside, will you move to the margins and move out to the side, the, the, the beliefs and, and the patterns and, and what culture or what church or Sunday school is maybe trying to tell us, but could that be moved to the side long enough for in a fresh way, in a fresh voice, Holy Spirit, you will speak to us who you truly are in this moment. 
and it would change us so that we don't leave the same way we walked in. We are expecting, Holy Spirit, speak through me whatever you want to say. In the name of Jesus we ask, amen. This passage that we read, Jesus, uh, it's accounted in a lot of the Gospels. And in some of the other Gospels, we read that this took place, it says, in the region or in the neighborhood, if you will, of Caesarea Philippi. And I got a chance to go to Caesarea Philippi last July when I was in Israel. And you can still see uh, the old ruins and the old indentions and stuff of to where some of these old temples used to be. And in Caesarea Philippi, it was just infiltrated and fully ingrained in just deep paganistic worship. They had temples to the god of Baal, they had temples uh, to the god of Pan, and they had temples dedicated to uh, Caesar Augustus, who was the ruling authority in that day. And what would take place in these temples, what would take place at these places of worship is these gods were solely uh, and fully just devoted to this grotesque sexual acts that was the form of worship. And so people would come and they would gather in these temples and they would enter into heterosexual and homosexual sexual acts that was purely lustful. Pan was this animal, half animal, half human God. And so whenever they worshiped him, they went into this animal-like, lustful, totally skewed form of intimacy and sex. And so as a byproduct of what would happen in these worship settings to the God of Pan is when you engage in certain sexual activities, pregnancy can happen. And so there would then become, these women would become pregnant. And if that pregnancy was an inconvenience to them, once that child was born, they'd bring that child back to the temple of Pan where they would drown them, kill them, sacrifice them. And then they would step back into the same sexual acts of worship that got them there in the first place. And it was this repetitive cycle over and over and over. And just a couple clicks down the way was also another temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus, which was, again, the governing authority. It'd be like having a temple or a place to worship that was dedicated to our president. And so Jesus takes his disciples to a place that worships sex, that worships child sacrifice, and has a worship of government. And it's in this culture that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, in light of all the wickedness behind us, in light of all the perversion of the culture, in light of all the things that are jockeying for the desires of your flesh, who do you say that I am? He didn't take him to the synagogue. He didn't take him to church. He stepped into some of the darkest, some of the most messed up, jacked up places and culture. And in a place that worshiped government and sex and child sacrifice for inconvenience, in this place, he points the question and says, who am I to you? And I don't believe culturally we find ourselves in that much of a place removed from where Jesus took his disciples. We live in a culture that is driven to try to satisfy the fleshly desires and the things that have been stated in Caesarea Philippi run rampant in our culture today. And it's in these places Jesus says, who am I? 
Can you recognize who I am? There's so many false gods that people are giving themselves to. They're sacrificing themselves to. They're giving their souls and their bodies away to a God who's dead that can offer them nothing in return. And you're giving everything. They're giving their lives to these things. Who am I? Am I just another one of them? Am I another God to be worshipped in convenience? Am I another God that's just amongst the many? Peter looks at him and he says, no, you're the Christ. The Christ meaning you are the anointed one. You are the one that is from God. David Guzik says, he says to this question, he says, in fact, we answer this question every single day by what we believe and what we do. He says, if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it will affect the way that we live. John, he writes it in 1 John. He, he says, you know, we, we, especially for us, I think as Southern Christians in, in, in church, John will write, he says, hey, if you say that you know him and his commandments are not within you, he says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. We think, oh, he says, hey, if you say, if you come in here and you claim, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, but his commandments don't abide within you, that you don't love him and love people, you don't have a heart of generosity, you don't see people's needs as greater than yours, if you don't ache to be able to figure out how to help the orphans and the widows and the poor, if love is not flowing out of you into others, as his commandments would say later on in 1 John, he says, then you're just a liar. And the truth is not a part of who you are. <laughs> So Jesus looks at him and he says, who am I to you? He asks them first, well, what does culture say? And they rattle off some things. Well, some think you're this, some say you're this. And he says, okay, I'm glad you can recognize what others say. Now let's direct that and hone that in acutely to who you are. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies correctly. He says, you're the Christ. You are the son of the only living God. We are in a region of plenty of false gods and none of them are true gods except for you. You are the one. You are the one who saves. You are the one who came. Jesus says, yes, you are correct. And then he moves in to tell them how he must go and suffer and be rejected and be killed. In verse 22, in verse 21, he says, strictly he charged them, don't say this to anyone right now. And then he said, the son of man, he must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So, so, so he asked the question, hey, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, as they walked with him, they recognized, man, there's something different in this guy than the other gods in our region. There's something different about the way he teaches. There's something different about the life we've experienced with him. And Peter will boldly say, you're the Christ. You are from God, the only living God. Jesus says, yes, Peter, now. Now I must go to actually suffer now and be rejected and be killed. And we think, all right, Tom, I got a question, Jesus. I thought we just answered the question correctly. 
Uh, is it not true that you're the anointed one? Like you're the one that's supposed to come and restore Israel back to, to unity with the Father. What do you mean you're going to die? And for us, it would be the comparison would be like us uh, putting all of our stake, all of our money, all of our uh, backing behind a presidential candidate. And he's leading the votes and he's just about to get elected into office in his last state of the union type address before he goes to be president. He says, guys, I'm going to Washington, but it's to be rejected and killed. We think, oh, hold up, bro, bro, we just spent so much money in your campaign. We just backed you. We just got whole sloths of people to come and support you and vote for you. Now you're going to die? Like, did we just waste our time? Did, did, did we just put all of our effort behind a, a, a waste of time for a guy that's going to go die? How is that the anointed one? And I think we've got this perception and the, the disciples have this perception because we believe that we really got to figure out on what Jesus came to say and do. And when I read this book, Jesus over and over and over again is saying, guys, this is not as it seems. My kingdom looks so different than the kingdom that you think is coming. My ways, my, my words, they're not the way that you perceive things. And Jesus says, in doing so, I've got to go suffer and die for you. I am the anointed one. I am the one that came to restore God's people back to himself. I am he. And for that to take place, I must suffer. And you can imagine the disciples think, I, I don't get it. And then he moves into... The next couple verses where Jesus says, I must suffer and be rejected. But then he directs the challenge and the invitation to the disciples. And he says, not only am I going to be rejected, not only am I going to suffer, not only am I going to lay my life down and die, be beaten, be brutalized beyond recognition. He says, but I'm inviting you actually to come and do the same thing. And we think, oh, timeout number two. Like, I thought to follow Jesus was to kind of have this guaranteed life of comfort and ease. Like, man, we live, we live in a beautiful country of freedom, and there is uh, there, there, wealth abounds, and opportunity abounds, and comfort abounds. Like, I thought to follow Jesus, what I grew up learning in church was that you say yes to Jesus, man, things get easy. Like, I thought to follow Jesus, man, I show up to church for an hour and 15 minutes or so. Maybe I get into a Bible study. Maybe I give a little bit of money when it's convenient. Maybe I, I don't gossip as much, or at least I'll say bless their heart before I do. Maybe I drink, maybe I drink in private so nobody really, I thought that's what it meant to follow Jesus. And guys, I, I, I want to tell you this morning, like if these are the things that have been groomed inside of you of the belief of what it means to follow Jesus, I'm sorry. Because we're reading a passage here where he says, no, 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 I've got to go die. And if you want to know what it looks like to really follow me, I'm inviting you into the same thing. In John chapter 15, right before Jesus is arrested, he takes his disciples to the garden and he begins to teach them. He says, don't you know, like you need to, you need to know ahead of time, like the world is going to hate you for following me. He'll say the servant, he said a servant is not greater than his master. An employer is not greater than the employee. 
He says, so why would you think that because I'm going to be rejected and suffer and die, why would you think that that, that that wouldn't maybe happen to you? He said, no, to follow me is for the world to hate you. And I would caution you guys, if it seems like your life aligns more and settles into the current more with culture and the world, then I would caution you to really take an assessment of am I really following Jesus the way that he tells us to? Because if my rhythms look more like that of Caesarea Philippi, if my rhythms look more like what culture wants to say is true, then there's a good chance there's a large part of me, if not all of me, that is out of line with the intentions and the ways and the teachings of Jesus to say, this is what it looks like to be a follower of me. This is what it looks like to truly be a follower of me. And he goes into three things. The first thing he says, he says, hey, if anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself. Two things here in deny yourself if you're taking notes. The first one is to deny yourself is to deny personal control over one's life. Like, and I'll be like, I love being in control, guys. I'm the first, I love my calendar. I love structure, I love rhythm, I love knowing here's what I got to do at nine, here's what I got to do at noon. Some of the scariest times for me in my life is riding with my wife and releasing control of the car. Anybody else, like you drive us through, you're like, I am not in control, I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have driven that, I wouldn't have made that turn, I wouldn't have done, you gotta release control. Right? I love having my hands gripped on the steering wheel, I love being in control of how fast that I'm going. And that's indicative of the way that I am in life so often. And Jesus says, no, no, if you want to follow me, you've got to quit trying to be in control of everything. It's not about you. You want to micromanage people. You want to micromanage your calendar. You want to micromanage your time so much. It's like, man, you're not giving any space for me to do anything with your life. And Jesus will say, he goes, hey, man, look at the birds. My mother-in-law, about a month or a month and a half ago, gave, we were leaving their house one day, and she brought out this shepherd staff thing and this bird feeder and bird. She's like, hey, I got you a bird feeder. And I thought, what in the world do I want a bird feeder for? And I was like, I got two little boys. She's like, maybe I put it in the backyard. And the boys are like watching the birds. We put it up. Within days, guys, bird watching has become one of my favorite hobbies. Cedar and I went to Walmart a couple days ago and we bought two more and spent way too much money on bird feed and we get so excited. We'll sit at dinner, every meal that we have, we're looking out the back window and Cedar's like, there's a red bird and, and there's more birds in the backyard and we love it. And I'm able to use that to teach the boys, like as Jesus would say, hey, look at the birds, man. They don't toil, they don't have a job, they don't work. And I feed them. They're taken care of. They don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. And I can teach my boys, say, guys, this is an opportunity that we get to co-feed with God, his creation. And Jesus will use that analogy of the bird who says, look at them. They're not in control. They're just being and abiding in who I've created them to be. And Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, it looks like first denying control of your life. Giving up having to be in control of every decision, for it all having to make sense. The second thing I would say is that denying yourself means to live as an others-centered person. We're selfish people. 
If you don't think you're selfish, like, look, man, I have some kids. Your kids are saying, man, I'm super selfish because I do not want to do what those little kids want to do half the time. I don't want to get up and go change that diaper. I wish nap time was six hours every day. You just need a little bit more time. And that can then begin to be the way that we look at people saying, no, I've got somewhere to be. I've got a timeline. This is my money. This is my. He goes, no, you got to deny that stuff. To follow me looks like living as an other-centered life. Seeing other people's needs is greater than your own. Seeing their time maybe is more valuable than yours. You got to deny that stuff. You got to be willing to lay that stuff down to be my disciple. The invitation in this is that we need to ask the Lord to bring to mind and to refine out of us those deep, ugly desires of the flesh that dwell within. Paul will write in Romans, he says, I, like, I, what I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and what I, I do want to do, I don't do. Why? Because I've got a flesh and there is a culture around me that is trying to do nothing but speak to me and flood information in front of me that just wants to gratify my flesh. And so every marketing scheme, everything that's on your phone, every algorithm that we think is random is a very in tune, very precise way to try to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And Paul says, man, like I'm trying to war against this stuff because it's killing me. Like if we continue just to fall into these schemes of culture, then we become gluttons for whatever our flesh desires. And so no wonder we're dying of addiction. No wonder we're, we're whittling away. No wonder like our minds are a mess because we don't know how to say no to the flesh. And Paul will say, man, like, like it's killing me, man. I don't know what to do. But... He says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who can deliver me from this body of death. And you have to know, guys, that this bondage that seems to grip you, that these fleshly desires that well up inside of you, you don't have to say yes to them. You've got the power through the blood of Jesus and the spirit that lives in you now to say no. And Jesus says, if you want to know what it looks like to follow me, you've got to learn to say no. You've got to quit trying to be in control. You've got to slow down long enough so I can speak words to you. And when I speak, you've got to be willing to apply these things. One of the ways that God speaks to me is through dreams. And about a year ago or so, God gave me a dream. I enjoyed, I enjoyed having an alcoholic drink from time to time. And God spoke to me, though, one night, and he basically told me, he's like, man, your, your witness and your testimony could be affected by alcohol. I would challenge you to say no and stop. You know, something small. It was an invitation. He said, hey, this is something that I see. You keep asking me what needs to be refined out. And throughout the years, guys, God will just bring something up, maybe in a dream, maybe from somebody else. Maybe it's a thought that you have driving down the road, but, but Jesus came to refine. Jesus came to stir within us the things that are ungodly, the things that are unholy, the things that are impure. He said, man, I want to stir those things out of you, and I want you to be free of them. And these desires of the flesh that you fall slave to so often, man, I want to heal those things. I want to free you of those things. But one, we've got to be willing Two, we've got to be silent and still enough to hear when he speaks. And three, we've got to act on him. Number two, he says, 
that you've got to take up your cross. David Guzik will write, he says that when the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang them on a cross, they first hung a cross on them. He says, carrying a cross always led to death on a cross. No one carried a cross for fun. The first hearers of Jesus, they didn't need an explanation of the cross. They knew it was an unrelenting instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. He said, if someone took up his cross, he never came back, but it was a one-way journey. He says, in the real-life crosses of the Roman world, no one took them up suggesting a voluntary action. He said, instead, crosses were impressed upon people quite apart from their willingness. Here Jesus said that those who follow him, excuse me, those who follow him must voluntarily take up the cross. You see, we live on the post side of the cross and resurrection. So when we read this, Jesus says, hey, like you gotta take up your cross. We think, okay, well, at least something good comes on the back side of it. Right, but, but, but the hearers and the disciples, as Jesus said, you got to take up your cross. They didn't know how Jesus was going to die. They didn't know how the story was going to end. So they heard Jesus say, hey, you have to willfully impose upon yourself a way of living each day in a lifestyle that says there is no turning back from this decision. Nobody had a cross put on their shoulders and got halfway and said, no, nah, I'm just kidding. I don't want to do that. Once you started that journey of carrying your cross to the hill to be crucified, you never returned. Jesus says, you want to know what it looks like to follow me and be my disciple? It looks like being willing to pick up something, walk a life, walk a path, and walk a line that says there is no turning back. Nothing is going to change this decision. And if it leads to me dying and being tortured, so be it. Have your way, Lord. I am your servant and yours alone denying your flesh, taking up a cross. He said, man, this brought forth humiliation. To see somebody carrying a cross was a humiliating thing. When the Romans would crucify a criminal, they would crucify them next to a busy road so that as they slowly died, hanging on a cross, gasping for air, breathing their last breath, people could walk back and forth and look at it and think, wow, what? I can't believe whatever they did to get up there. Oh, what a... What a terrible life they must have lived. I could never imagine. It was humiliation. It was rejection. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You want to follow me? Man, that's what, you got to be willing to live in a life that would look like as if you were hanging on a cross. Last thing he says is now deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The idea is to follow Jesus in his teachings is to become a true disciple. I love the saying. It says, to follow Jesus looks like walking with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become more like Jesus. And the challenge is, is that might literally mean laying down your life. That might literally mean giving all that you have to take care of the poor. That might mean opening up your home to invite somebody in to live with you. That might mean selling your home and moving to a distant place and leaving your business to go into ministry or using your business for kingdom purposes. He says, whatever it is, you just got to have this willingness to use whatever I've given you, the spheres of influence I've given you, your resources, your time. Use those things for the kingdom of God now. In Mark chapter 1, it says, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Not just when you die, but I'm actually bringing the kingdom now to you. And to follow me looks like using whatever atmosphere you are in, whatever resources to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with it. Whatever you want to do, it's not mine. You want to take it, you want to give me more, it's yours. And I will use it for your glory over and over and over. And I would say this, like for some of you guys, like, like the, the, the perception and the way of thinking that you've grown up to believe of who Jesus is, it might not necessarily be your fault. Right? Like I work with a lot of students and, and in student ministry, you'll come in contact with plenty of kids who may like, they're just hard to work with. They're frustrating. They're even a little annoying at times. Like they drive the life out of you here and there. But the ones that are, are troubled, the ones who have a hard time to connect with, it's not always their fault. But sometimes it's a byproduct of the environment that they were grown up and raised in. Now, what is their choice is the willingness to say, I'm choosing to step out of that into a different way of living that is so far different in contrast from the way I grew up and was raised. To say, man, I want something more. I don't want to stay stuck in the way that I was raised. I don't want to stay stuck in these generational patterns. That may not be their fault because they were born into it but they can choose to step out of that. And likewise, church, you may have grown up being drugged to church and thrown in a Sunday school or going to a church that heretically taught a way of following Jesus that this isn't true. They may say, man, sign your name on this card, get dunked in the water and you're good. And if that's the way that you were grown up again, like you have the choice, so to say, Lord, I want to step out of that false belief. I want to step out of that false truth. I want to take your word for what it is and say, no, like I, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I'm choosing now to align my life and live in such a way that is going to deny control, willing to carry and bear a cross if it means humiliation and death and use whatever I can to honor you and serve you. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus, guys. That is the truth that Jesus says. He says, if in this world you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to align yourselves with the worship of Baal and Pan and, and the worship of Caesar, like you're going to come up short. It's going to leave you empty and hurting and wanting more and in this perpetual cycle of grief and pain. But who do you say that I am? If I am the Christ, if I am the risen one, if I am the son of the one true God, then this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to say yes to a life devoted to Jesus. And I love this, this analogy is that Jesus just uh, didn't just die to get us into heaven one day but rather he died so that heaven could get into us today. And this idea is that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand and he brings eternal life, it's not just that when I die, I enter into eternal life, but because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, no, I'm actually inviting you to begin living into this eternal way of living right now. Like, man, you want to live abundantly generous. You want to have impact for the kingdom. You want to see the supernatural take place. You want to see power like you've never seen. I'm inviting you into that now. But to enter into eternal life always brings death. So for the living in the flesh, we enter into eternal life by saying no and putting to death the desires of the flesh every single day. So when I wake up each morning saying, Lord, I am dying to my desires. I am, I am laying down my life willing to give whatever it takes to follow you. 
love, there's a saying that says like the, 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 the sign of maturity in a believer isn't that the believer sins less and less, but that when there is sin in the life, the time between sin and repentance gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And each day it's saying, Lord, I know I'm gonna mess up. I know I'm gonna screw things up, but Lord, I want to align my life with what I read and see. I'm putting to death my desires today so I can step into eternal living now. And then one day your flesh is going to die in this world. And your spirit's going to get to step into eternal living. And you're going to get to see God in all of his glory. And the call now is to align ourselves with the way Jesus says this is what it looks like to enter into a life of godliness. Godliness brings with it this idea that when Jesus came, as we said earlier, he came as a refiner. He came to refine things out of us. And a refiner would sit at uh, the, the, the front of a metal and he would heat it up to extreme heats. And it would bring to it the surface of all these impurities and things in the metal. And he'd scrape off the top layer. And then he'd heat it up again and more impurities would come up and he'd scrape it off again. He'd do that process over and over until he could look down at the metal and he could clearly see his reflection in the metal. And Malachi will write, hey, there's one coming who's going to sit as a refiner of silver. And when Jesus came, he came with the ability to refine out of you, refine out of me any impurities, any imperfections, any sin, any desires of the flesh. Until we get to this place where Jesus can look down, he's like, man, I can see my reflection in you. Like, man, like when I look at your life, it looks like me. Gosh, man, like that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not about just a church service. It's about coming and learning and joining together in community and shouldering with each other to say, Lord, we're in this process of being refined. We're in this process of denying ourselves. We're in this process of wanting more. Will you make us look like you as individuals and as the church? And that comes through saying, Lord, I need a, first of all, a right view of who you are. I need you to speak truth to me about who you really are. And then I need you to help me believe it. I wrote down things in my journals for years, guys, that I did not believe about God. Because I believe that if we can speak lies to ourselves and believe those so easily, it takes no faith to believe a lie that Satan tells you about yourself. And so we believe these lies and we say, that's just who I am. And if we can believe those to be true, then surely if I speak truth over my life, it might take longer, but in time I'll have faith to believe that to be true about God. And so we ask God, who are you? And then we say, Lord, help me believe that. And tomorrow, Lord, help me believe that. And tomorrow, Lord, help me align my life in a belief pattern like that. And tomorrow, Lord, help me to become more like that because the flesh is waging war against me. I don't know what to do. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who delivers me from this body of death. Lord, help me to be refined again today. And again today, until I live a life that is unafraid of death. I'm unafraid of being hated. I'm afraid, unafraid of humiliation. Nick, if you guys want to head this way. In 1950s, somewhere in the 1950s, in North Korea, there was a pastor who had 27 of his flock. And it was illegal to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus in North Korea. And so these 28 followers of Jesus, they lived in hand-dug tunnels underneath the earth. Because they said, gosh, I want, we want to follow Jesus. We want to search his word. We want to worship him. And so they lived underground. 
In the 1950s, the North Korean government came to grade and dig out new roads. And in their process of digging the new roads, they uncovered these tunnels and these Christians that were living underground. And so they collected all 28 of these Christians. And it said the next day, they pulled these 28 Christians out into the community in front of 30,000 people for a public execution. And it says that the, the adults and the children that they first got the children and they put a rope around their neck and they said to the adults, deny Jesus or we're going to kill your children. And it said the parents looked at their sweet kid and says, we're going to see you again real soon. And it said the children quietly and peacefully died. And then they grabbed the adults and they laid them out in this road that was being built and they brought a steamroller and they said, deny following Jesus or we're going to crush you. And it said that the believers, they, they laid there silent. And so they lined them up. And as the steamroller got closer and closer to the point where it started rolling over and crushing their bodies from the legs up, they joined in song together, singing praise and worship to God. Likely, it said, songs that they had probably sang for years living underground because there was nothing that they were not willing to die for and lay themselves down for to say yes to following Jesus. And I read these stories of Christian martyrs throughout history and throughout the world because that is more of a reality for a lot of followers of Jesus throughout history and throughout the world and more in line with the invitation Jesus spoke to us here than it is with the culture that we are thankfully able to worship in freedom in. That is a reality of the invitation of what Jesus is inviting us into. And I pray and I hope that we're necessarily not ever faced with those kinds of decisions. But I do pray and I do hope that even if Jesus calls us to somewhere like that, to that level of faith, that his grace will be sufficient and the strength and the courage inside of us will be strong enough to say, I don't care what it takes. I will never say no and deny my Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you will create that inside of each one of us. God, I pray that we will want so much more than a church service. God, I pray that you will speak clearly to us who you are. Lord, that we wouldn't be bound by maybe false beliefs or perceptions, but that in spending time in your word and in spending time in prayer, you will speak clearly and truly to us. God, and I pray that we would take this invitation seriously, that if we're not willing to live a life like this, then we're truly not willing to live and follow you. And it's best to just say we're not. But if we are, God, create in us this kind of courage. Create in us this kind of desire and willingness for you. Lord, I pray that you will refine us. God, I pray that you will stir within us uh, and show us, bring to the surface anything that doesn't honor you. Lord, anything that you just want to clean out so that you can look down at our reflection, look down at our lives, and that it would look like you. And that reflection of your character and who you are would then be carried with us to everybody that we encounter, that they may see the hope and the love of Jesus through our lives. In Jesus' name.